0: The Shem's assistance, we learn about Bakamad Aftsadi, page 90. We begin on the bottom of 89b, of Vase, and we were in the middle of discussing this Brysa. We had two different versions of the Brysa. We're talking about a woman who she comes into the marriage with a slave. So the, her husband now has rights to whatever the slave produces, but she retains the actual slave itself. So, in one version of the Brysa, so if she knocks out the tooth of the slave or the eye, the slave goes out free. It's considered that she is the owner. And then another version of the Brisa, So if she knocks out the eye or, or the tooth, so the slave doesn't go out free. So we tried to say that the reason was it had to do with whether or not we say takanas usha, whether or not the husband, uh, the slave is considered meshubit, It's considered encumbered to him. That if she dies, it automatically goes to him, and he can take it away from the those who bought it. So if it's considered encumbered to him, so that's why if she knocks out the tooth, according to one brisa, it doesn't go out. The slave doesn't go out free. According to the other brisa, it's not considered encumbered because we don't say takanas usha. That's what we tried to say. So the Gemara said that you don't have to say that. It could be that one brisa is talking about before takanas usha one brysa so talking about, I usha. So now the Gemara offers a different possibility, where four lines from the bottom last word in on the line. same another possibility. Idviili takana. Both of them are talking about after the takana, after the decree, and therefore it's considered that in a certain sense uh, her husband has rights to this slave. So if she knocks out the tooth or the eye, it shouldn't go out free. V'isla like We said everyone agrees that it's considered that it's encumbered to the husband. Ela leish. So then why does one say that in fact if the woman knocks out the tooth or the eye it will go out free, the slave will go out free? My time. Kid it's like Rav, the Rav. Rav says, There's a concept like this. Rashi explains that if, let's say, someone says that I have this animal, and this animal is going to be a place for you to collect from. Ruvain borrowed money from Shimon, and now Ruvain guarantees the loan by saying that if I don't pay back, you can take this animal from me. Now, after that, so Ruvain goes and he's maktish, he donates the animal to the temple. So that donation has the ability to take away the right of Shimon to collect from that animal, even though that animal had been designated that Shimon would collect from it. Similarly, let's say we have someone who is a Jew who borrows money from a non-Jew, and he guarantees the non-Jew that if I don't pay, then you can collect from this chameh, some bread, whatever it is. And then Pesach comes along, so what happens? So Pesach knocks out the Shibud, and Pesach requires that you have to burn the chameh, even though it's encumbered to this non-Jew and the third case is the case of Shechor which is if let's say you said that if I don't pay you back so you're going to collect from a slave and then you freed the slave so the fact that you freed the slave takes away the ability of the person to collect from it so so too in our case where the woman in effect is freeing the slave by knocking out the tooth so the brisa that says indeed she goes out free so it's because the brisa holds that you can take away the ability of this person to collect meaning the husband so therefore that's why that Brysa holds that way so come on, says, hold on a second Laman de Rav then it would come out that this statement of Rava, he's an Amora, it's actually an argument between two different races, because one Rishi says that in fact, if she knocks at the, two, the slave, does not go out free. So that would imply that in fact, sending out a slave is not Mafkimi it doesn't take away the Shibud, and therefore it remains encumbered to the husband. No. Everyone agrees to Rava that in fact if someone frees a slave, so it's going to take away a shibud, the fact that it was encumbered to someone else. However, in this specific case, the sages said, because of Eva, because we're afraid, that the husband and the wife will get into tiffs. So they said that the shibud, the encumberment to the husband, is going to be stronger than the fact that she knocks out the tooth. And another possibility to explain these two Everyone agrees that we don't say usha. in fact, the slave is not encumbered to the husband. And here the argument has to do with something completely different. And that is, the fact that the husband owns or has a rights to whatever it's producing, is that considered that he also has rights to the actual slave itself, and therefore it's not considered hers at all. We plug to the and it has to do with the argument of the following and the if somebody sells his slave to someone else and let's say he makes up with him that I still want to be able to retain the rights to using the slave for another 30 days Rabbi so there's a concept of a day or two if let's say somebody um, strikes his slave a death blow but he doesn't die right away so the halacha is as long as he stays alive for a day or two so the Torah says so then the owner of the slave is not going to have an obligation to be killed even though it was a direct result of his blow that the the slave died. So now, so Rabbi Meir says, "Who's considered the owner at this point? Is it the one who sold it and retained the rights to use the slave for another thirty days, or is it the new owner?" So Rebbe Meir says that the first person, the person who sold the slave, it's still considered that it's his beneath tachtov because the slave is still beneath his service. And explains Rashi that the whole concept has to do with that since I have a right to force my slave to work. We're talking about a non-Jewish slave here. So since I have a right to force my slave to work, so if I strike him too hard and he ends up dying in the end, as long as he doesn't die right away, I'm not going to have an obligation to be killed so what the Gemara explains so what's the understanding of Rabbi Meir it's because he holds that when you have the rights to whatever the slave is going to produce it's considered that you have the rights to the actual goof the actual body of the slave and therefore it's considered that it's your slave the first guy who sold it even though he doesn't actually own the body of the slave anymore in a certain sense he does since he has the rights to whatever it produces Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Yehuda says the second guy is the one who's considered that if he hits him and he dies after a day or two that he's not going to have an obligation to be killed, and the reason is because it, the value of the slave belongs to the second guy, it's because the Behuda holds, that if you have the rights to whatever the slave is producing, it's not considered that you actually have the slave itself, so therefore the first person who sold it, who has retained the rights to use the slave, if he hits him and he dies over a day or two, so then he is indeed going to have an obligation to be killed since he was the one who killed the slave, and it doesn't belong to him in a certain sense. Rabbi Yehazi, Rabbi Yehazi says, Shnei yashtam b'den yom o both of them are included in the halacha of a day or two, meaning they're both considered the master. Zemidnei shu the first one because he has the rights to whatever the slave produces. is shu and the other one because the slave, the body of the slave, in a certain sense belongs to the second person. So, what's the understanding of this Masafkale, So, actually has a doubt. Kinyan paris guftami, whether or not if you have the rights to the produce, whatever the products of the slave are, whether it's considered that you have the rights to the actual body. Of the slave or not. And since we're talking about the obligation to kill a person, so when it comes to capital punishment, so we are makal, if we can be, we're lenient as we can be. Rabbi the Rabbi is a different understanding. Both of them actually are not included in the concept of one or two days, meaning there will be an obligation for death for both of them if they kill him. So the second guy just bought him, so he doesn't have the rights to whatever the slave produces, so it's not considered his. And the first guy, so since he sold him so he doesn't have the rights to the actual body of the slaves therefore it's not considered his either therefore either one who kills him, it's going to be like he killed someone else's slave, and the halacha is, the law is that if he kills someone else's slave, even if he takes a few days to die, there's going to be an obligation for death on the person who caused that death, so now coming back to our two brothers, in regards to a slave that belongs to a woman, and the husband has the rights to the produce of a slave, so According to the Brasil that says that if she knocks out the tooth, it's gonna to be considered that the slave is gonna go out free. That's because the fact that the husband has the fruits, it's not considered that he actually has the actual body of the of the slave. And therefore, when she knocks out the tooth of the slave, it's considered her slave and the slave goes out free. According to the other Brasil that says no, that the slave will not go out free if she knocks out the tooth, it's because the husband who has the rights to the produce, it's also considered that he has the rights to the body of the slave. Therefore, when she knocks out the tooth, it's not considered her slave enough for the slave to be able to go out free. Command Alhada Umrami. Like, whom does it go? The following statement of Amemer. Let's say you have a man and a woman. So each one of them has a portion in the piece of property that she brought in, she has a portion in the actual property itself, and he has a portion in whatever the property produces. So if they try to sell it, lay us full The said that they can't do that, since they don't, neither of them owns the whole thing. Kiman Like whom is this? This is like Rabbi deliezer. Because Rabbi Eliezer said, in regards to a slave, so he was the fourth mandawah in the so he had said that since neither of them own the whole thing in any regard, because each of them only owns a certain aspect of it, right, the husband only owns the produce, and the wife only owns the actual body of the slave, so therefore, they're not considered full-fledged owners and just like in regards to the slave so to piece of, in regards to a piece of land they're not going to be able to sell the piece of land who is the Tana of the following if let's say somebody is half freed and he's half a slave still or let's say you have a slave that belongs to two different uh, partners so the slave is not going to be able to go out if one of the people knocks out his tooth if it was something that doesn't return like a tooth or an eye so who is this so Rav Mordechai says this is what it was said in the name of Ravah Rabbi Eliezer he is actually Rabbi Eliezer like we just said did not Rabbi Eliezer say that when the verse is his money and it's talking about in regards to a case where the, the master killed him and he waited a day or two to die so when do we apply that concept only when it's his Kasef something that's um, it specifically belongs to him not when it belongs to a man let's say and his wife so to when the verse says in regards to a case where someone is selling. Something. It says Avdoi, his slave, so it has to specifically belong to one person, it has to be designated for one person. If it belongs to two different people, then we wouldn't apply this idea when we begin the Mishnah. If, let's say somebody causes some kind of damage. He scares his friend. So he has to pay him a sella. Rabbi says the name of Money has to give mana, which is a hundred. Let's say he smacked him. So he has to give him two hundred zuz. It's a tremendous embarrassment. Let's say he used the back of his hand. He backhandedly slapped him. He has to pay double. It's a greater embarrassment. If, let's Let's say he took off a piece of his ear, or he pulled on his ear. The two different explanations in Rashi. Talash Bessarai, he cut his hair. Rokak, he spit vigia by and the spit got on him. Talita Mimenu, he took off his clothes from him. Par Isha, let's say he uncovered a woman's hair in public. Nois in the so you have to pay for that 400 Zuz, so it's a tremendous embarrassment. We turn to Tzadiyama Beis, page 90b. Zeha this is a general law, kol Everything goes according to a person's honor the Gemara is going to explain exactly what the ramification of this statement is. Um, Rabbi, Kiva, Rabbi Kiva says, even if a person is very poor, we view them like a regular free person who has no money, they're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning we view everyone equally, it doesn't matter if a person is rich or poor, everyone is viewed on the same level. There was a certain story with a certain person, that he pulled off the hair covering of a woman in public. So he came from Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva required him to pay 400 Amar Rabbi, So he said to him, Rabbi, give me some time in order to be able to pay her. So he gave him some time. Now this guy hatched a plan and he did the following. He waited until she was standing at the doorway to her courtyard. And right in front of her, he broke a jug, had a certain amount of oil inside of it. What did she do? She uncovered her head. She used the head covering to clean up the mess, and she was covering her head with her hand. So he came prepared with witnesses for this scenario. He brought the witnesses in front of Rabbi Kiva, and he said to Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi, my teacher, this woman, I have to pay her 400 Zeus for embarrassing her by taking off her head covering. She herself takes off her own head covering. Why do I have to pay? So Rabbi Kiva says, I'm sorry, my friend, but what you've done has not accomplished anything. What you've said is not worth too much. Why? because we find in regards to somebody who let's say causes damage to himself even though he's not permitted to cause himself damage obviously he's not going to have to pay himself but nevertheless if someone else causes him damage they still do have to pay but If, let's say somebody cuts down a fruit tree from his backyard even though it's not permitted in fact it's forbidden the Torah says you're not allowed to cut down your fruit trees if he did so so he's not going to have to pay himself but someone else did it to him they will have to pay so, so too in this case even though theoretically she could embarrass him She doesn't have to pay herself for the embarrassment that she caused herself But you will have to pay for that embarrassment We begin the Gemara I'll ask you a question In the Mishnah when we talked about that you have to pay a hundred To somebody who you If you blew in his ear and you embarrassed the guy If you blew a loud noise So when it says a hundred, so there's two different types of hundreds There's a hundred which is Tzuri Which is eight times the amount of a different type of currency Which is called a hundred Medina So which one is implied by the Mishnah we have a proof. There was a certain person. So he did this thing. He made a loud noise in his friend's ear, and he embarrassed him. So they came in front of Rabbi Huda, the prince. Ammerle and Rabbi Judah Hanasi said like this. Behold, I am, ha, Rabbi Yosef And behold, there is Rabbi Yosef Yaglili. Havle monatsuri. Give him this hundred, which is the higher value, which is a hundred tsuri. And that's what Rabbi was talking about. Shmamina, monatsuri tanan, shmamina. So we can, we can deduce that the Mishnah, when it says a mana, when it says a hundred, it means the higher valued hundred. My ha ana. What did he mean? What did Rabbi Judan nasi mean when he said, "Behold, I am; behold, Rabbi Yisraeli." If you want to say that this is what he meant, "Behold, I am; I saw what you did." And behold, there is a statement of Rabbi Yisraeli, the Manatsuri, who says that you have to give a hundred, which is the higher value, hundred. Go give him that amount. So the implication of that statement, if that's what he meant, is that he saw something and he could also be a judge. But so that seems to imply not that way. If you see. Something, the breast would seem to say that you cannot also be a judge. So, if there was a group of sages who usually served as a court and they saw a person kill someone else, so Rabbi Tarfin says that some of them can be witnesses and the rest of them they can be judges. Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva says they all have to be witnesses, they can't be judges. Somebody who witnessed something cannot become a, a judge as well. So Rabbi Typhon who said that some of them can become witnesses and some of them can become judges So he only says over there Because some of them are going to play the role of testifying And some of them are going to play the role of being the judges But even Rabbi Typhon agrees that one person cannot play two roles So how could it be that Rabbi Huda Nasi had said that I saw what happened and I'm judging on the case as well How could that be? So the like, my answers, "Ki he, when did we say in that Beraita that they can't serve two roles? Ki Gan that they saw it at night time. So when they saw it at night, the they can't do the judgment at night time, and they're going to have to the next day. They're going to have to say the testimony over for what they saw, and then they're going to have to judge about that." Now, if it had happened during the daytime, so the actual thing that happened in a certain sense is like the testimony itself. They don't need to testify, and therefore they can judge about something that they saw. However, if they need to actually physically testify, because they couldn't judge at the time when they saw it, when the testimony, so to speak, of the thing itself actually happened in front of them, so since they couldn't do it then, so the next day they had some of them had to testify, and some of them had to be the judges, because you can't, you can't have one person playing two roles. But in our case, Rabihuddin Nasi, so in a certain sense, yeah, he saw what happened, but the actual thing that happened itself was the testimony, and therefore he could judge on such an action since it occurred at a time which was appropriate for judgment. you say another possibility. It could be that Rabbi Judah Nasi. What did he mean? As follows. When he said, "Behold, I am," what did he mean? That I hold. Behold, I hold like Rabbi Yosei Who says that you have to pay a hundred tsuri? That's higher value. And there are witnesses, meaning he wasn't saying that he was the one who actually saw, but he was saying that there are witnesses who actually saw him. Therefore, give him that hundred. And according to this understanding, so it has nothing to do with the person seeing it becoming a judge. So another Gamar challenges something that we said, is it true that Rabbi Akiva holds that if a person is a witness, he can't also be a judge, or he can't become a judge if he saw it? We have a brisa that seems to contradict this. It says in regards to somebody who causes death to someone else, that he hit him, either with his hand, with a fist, or with a stone. So Shem'an Atamani, Atamani says, just like in regards to a fist, it's something which is specifically le'edim, that we can determine, since the person is in the court, we can determine whether or not he has the power, he has the ability to cause death with his fist. So to any case, even in regards to a stone, we have to be able to see that the stone has the ability to cause his death. So this is a to exclude a case where the, the the stone is not around anymore, we can't determine whether or not this stone was strong enough to cause death. How can you prove anything from that verse, from the fact that we see that it talks about uh, the person striking him and the guys in, in front of us in court, how do we know how hard he actually hit him? It could be that he has the power to do, but who says he hit him that hard? And not only that, but we can't know in the court based on if we look at this guy, how strong he is, if he has the ability to hit someone, we don't know where he hit the guy, if it was on a thigh, or a or it was a different place, it's more likely for the person to get killed, Rashi says, if you hit him around the heart area... Let's see somebody push someone else off of the roof of a, of a house. The top of a tower. and That's how the guy died. What, are we gonna make the court go over to this tower? Are we gonna bring the tower to the court? And Rashi explains because it can't be that the Torah is matriach, bothered the best in the court to actually have to do these things. It can't be additionally let's say the tower that the guy threw him off of it fell down whether well, they have to build it back up to see if this is a tower that's high enough in order to be able to cause his death so, so he says no it must be that just like a fist is something which the witnesses can see if he killed him so so to any case that the witnesses could be able to figure out whether or not this was something that could cause a death so this would come to exclude a case where they need never actually saw the size of the rock, it, it disappeared. Potter said so then there would be no obligation for death in such a case. Now really what it comes down to, according to Rabbi Akiva, is that the court has to be able to know that the witnesses themselves were, were able to determine at the time of murder whether or not this person caused the murder or it was some other factor that the murder was caused by. So they have to be able to know that. As opposed to Shimonate Mani, he holds that the court itself has to be able to determine and figure out if indeed the person or the stone had the ability to cause this death. Now, the so Gemara finishes up by telling us, in any event, what does it say in this Bryce? So, Amr the Rebbe Kiva had said, Was it before the courts that he struck him? That they can figure out how hard he struck him? So the silly implication is, if indeed the strike had happened, the murder had occurred in front of the courts, a. Nassadayin. It sounds like even though they were the ones who saw it, they could still judge about this case. That's the implication of what he said. Sigmar answers, The truth is that he was just saying, even according to Shimon HaTemon, he was responding, and he was saying that even according to you, the Tanakama, you hold that if, if you have an aid, if someone sees something, they can indeed be a judge. So according to you, the murder would have to take place in front of the court in order for them to be able to figure out if he did enough of a strike in order to kill this person. But he himself, Rabbi Kippur, does not in fact hold that if they saw it, they couldn't judge. So that's not a proof. We learned in the short time. If you have an ox which is not wild, It killed somebody and also caused damage. So all we do is we judge about this animal in regards to the death that it caused, and we don't get involved in the damage that it caused. And Rashi explains that the reason is since it has to be killed, so therefore when it comes to an animal which is tam, which is a tame animal, so all you can collect from in regards to the damage is only from the animal itself, since the animal has to be killed, so you can't collect from the animal itself, and therefore we don't get involved in the damage that was caused. Let's say the animal was a wild animal shahimis and it caused a death for his it can also cause damage so we can get involved in the damage that was caused because in regards to an animal which is a wild animal so you don't collect from the actual body of the animal itself you can collect from other places and therefore so despite the fact that it's going to be killed you can still collect from elsewhere so what you do is the first thing that you do is you get involved in the damages that was caused and only then after that do we get involved in the fact that it killed someone if let's say they first judged about the animal in regards to the death that it caused, so we don't get involved afterwards in the damage that was caused. So this needs explanation, the is going to explain it very soon. So My says, well, hold on a second. Just because we started off talking about the death that it caused, what's the difference, My Havi? What's the difference? Why don't we also go back and get involved in the judgment in regards to the damage that was caused? So Rav says like this. I met the sages of the yeshiva that they were saying as follows. Who is this? It's Rabbi Shimon that mentioned in the previous The Da'amar who says That just like in regards to a fist when somebody kills someone else or actually the Rashi says it's actually not talking about death it's actually talking about causing damage so that's something that we can figure out if this fist has the ability to cause that kind of damage So Rabbi Shimon HaTemani holds that we can deduce from there that we need the court to be able to figure out if this thing had the ability to cause this damage and in regards to this animal that killed someone and also caused damage, once you have already done, we've already judged in regards to the case where it caused death, and we have to kill this animal. So we can't leave it over for the court to be able to figure out if this animal indeed had the ability to cause the damage that was caused. So we don't get involved in judging that case at all. And that's why, so if it was first done, if it was first judged about this animal in regards to the death, we don't get involved in the damage case as well. So Ravi says, I said to them, that you could even say, actually, this is Rabbi Kiva. Even Rabbi Kivu who says that we don't need the court to figure out if this animal could be able to cause such a damage. So then why can't we do, once we've already determined that this animal has to be killed, why can't we get involved in figuring out the damage? What's the case over here? Where the owner ran away after the animal was sentenced to death, but before they actually got to be involved in the damage case. And Rashi explains that we have a concept of adam that we can't cause someone to have to pay something if he's not around. If the guy's not around, we can't get involved in the case. So we have to kill the animal, we have to kill the animal. That's the end. Sigmar challenges this and says like this, if any of the cases where the owner ran away, so we have other cases in the b'risa, we can't just say one case is one way and then You know, it has to be uniform. The whole Bible says to be talking about the same thing. So now we said previously that if they had not yet sentenced the animal to death, so if the owner ran away, how can we talk about the fact that if they had not judged it yet and sentenced it to death, that we would indeed go and talk about the damage that was caused. The indication is that even though the owner ran away, according to the way Rubb is explaining it, you would still be able to judge in regards to the the damage, but we said that's not true. So the Gemara answers the Uborach that actually what happened was first, we had the witnesses come and testify about the damage and that's when he ran away Sigmar says hold on if the guy's not around so where are you going to pay from because all you have is this animal and we already said that since the animal itself has to be killed you can't pay from the animal itself Sigmar answers what you can do is you can take the animal you can rent out the animal and the payment for the rental you can take that money and give it to the person who got damaged Sigmar says if so, tamni why can't we do the same thing in regards to the animal that's tame we should go. We should first figure out how much damage was caused. Then we should go and rent out the animal and take that money and give it to the person who got damaged. Why don't we do that in that case? And then go and get involved in the fact that it caused death. So, the son of Akana says as follows. The indication here is that when we talk about the money that you can get from renting out the animal, it's not considered something that's intrinsic to the animal itself because you could see it in two different ways. What's this money that you're getting from renting out the animal? Is it part of the animal that the goof, the body of the animal itself, or do we say there's something extrinsic to it? So from the fact that we see that you don't go and take this money and be able to pay it off to the person who got damaged in regards to a case where the animal is tame, so where the animal is tame, so all you can pay from is the animal itself. So obviously we don't do that in this case because this is not called the animal itself, because it's something that's extrinsic to the animal, and therefore that's why you can't pay in regards to a tame animal from whatever money you get from renting out the animal. And that's why once the animal has killed someone, so what we say is at first you you judge in regards to the death and you don't get involved in the damages because all you can collect from is the animal itself and the animal itself has to be killed.